It was one of the most embarrassing F1 entries ever. In 1997, Lola turned up to the first race woefully unprepared, and after one humiliating failure to qualify, the team closed its doors for good less than two weeks later. So what went wrong? Why was the car so bad? And why did Lola commit to its doomed entry so late in the day? To help me, Glenn Freeman, get to the bottom of those questions, I'm joined by Ed Straw and Sam Smith. Welcome back to Bring Back V10s, gents. I said after our France 1989 episode that we'd have to find more common ground for you both now that we'd run out of Paul Ricard races from our era. And it turns out we've done it because you both love rubbish F1 cars and Sam loves Lola. So Sam, it's only fair that you get to take the opening question first. So when you think of Lola's 1997 F1 entry, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It's just the fact that all the constituent parts seem to be terrific and real and credible, but the end result was just so abject. Uh, nothing more than that. I think the hope was it was going to be um, a really forceful entry working on the heritage that Lola had in Formula One and bringing lots of really good engineers together. Uh, and, it, and it just never worked out that way. So, yeah, the, the hopes dashed within, what, a race. That's it. Not even a race, a qualifying session. And I said there you love Lola. That's, of course, because you worked there for a long time, but you didn't join until a few years after this sorry scenario so during your time there in the 2000s did people ever talk about what happened with the f1 project or was that a topic that you weren't allowed to mention inside the walls of huntingdon in hushed tones it was like the <laughs> the, the topic that dare not speak its name when i first joined in 2002 and we were forever remembered about the project because there was a a lone tub in the corner of the uh, stalls which people sort of did a little hex when they went past it just to you know banish some of the spirits from that from that time but um it was remembered not fondly but having said that it was such a pivotal part of lola's history that you know it it kind of had its own little um it's it's its own little vibe really in in the factory people who were there and experienced in that project did come out with some uh amusing um and fraught anecdotes shall we say so from that point of view it was it was a it was ultimately a doomed project but it was one which sort of pivoted lola's entire history and, and split it into two separate sort of epochs if you will yeah and we'll come back to that towards the end now ed nobody loves rubbish f1 cars more than you so what's your overriding memory of this famous f1 failure well, the general feeling is just gratitude that it happened, so we can speak about it a few decades later. But but the one thing that always leaps to mind and has actually caused me a few problems is Ricardo Rosset spinning and hitting the wall at Turn 4 in Melbourne. Now, in my memory, he definitely hit the wall, but I've been looking for this footage, and although I found evidence of him spinning, it, it cuts before he hits the wall. So I'm not entirely sure whether that accident was sort of inspired by reality and, and built up to kind of a grand metaphor in my head. But I'm, I'm going to go with it. I can enjoy that accident on replay in my head as, as much as I want, and it just encapsulates the whole thing. I mean, it might be true, as we, we'll discuss later. Rossa had no memory of driving the car at any other place other than Albert Park, and we know that's certainly not true. Uh, but make sure you get your questions in for our series finale, where you can ask us about anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005. And in fact, we've been asked about this very story in one of those episodes in the past. So 
we do take on uh, sometimes the questions we get as suggestions for future episodes as well. Alternatively, you can ask a question by leaving us a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it. Thank you to our most recent reviewers, including Matty D1989, GGJ Talks, Fothers1995, and IndyCart. We're starting this story all the way back in November of 1994, because that's when Lola announced its intention to race in F1 in 1996, and it revealed a test car for that project known as the T9530. Lola founder Eric Broadley said he hoped to be able to enter for 95, but despite a great deal of activity with sponsors and investors in the last two weeks, by the entry deadline of November the 20th, we still did not have sufficient of the required budget committed and in place to justify making the decision for 1995. We have made it clear all along that we are only interested in entering F1 at a highly competitive level. Oh dear. And the budget we had to secure to date did not give us sufficient confidence that we would be able to achieve that aim. Consequently, we prefer to build for 1996 while reaping the benefits of a test program. Designer Julian Cooper said the test car was simple and elegant and the best way to come up with a good design is to evolve with experience, and I believe we've got a good basic design. Sam, the key here was that this was going to be Lola's first attempt at entering F1 itself, rather than providing cars for existing teams as it had done in the past. Was it inevitable that Broadley was going to take Lola into F1 as a team at some point? Yeah, well, the key word there is team, isn't it? There's there's plenty of evidence to to state that there was something deep within Eric uh, that he wanted to make a mark in F1 after so many years as a supplier or technical partner with the likes of Honda, Embassy Hill, of course, uh, La Russe, which was pretty successful in 1990 particularly, and, and Scuderia Italia. I, I knew Eric a little bit, but never discussed it with him. However, a few good friends and ex-colleagues certainly did. And, and what's sort of consistent is Eric's quiet determination to show the world of Lola's excellence beyond just customer car racing really that's that's what he wanted to achieve if if you see what he did with Newman Haas from sort of 1983 through to the the Mansell year in 93 with with Carl Haas which really created a kind of pseudo factory team for the best part of that decade i think that in its in a sense whetted an appetite for Eric to do something in F1 when you add in those motivations to the fact that Eric was not only a visionary technical talent, but also a pretty shrewd reader of where the industry was going in the sense that spec formulas only had a certain shelf life at that time. Then, you know, his, his mind was wandering into F1, I think from, from the early, early nineties, particularly when he saw that the, they could get points and they could get top sixes with, with LaRousse on a, what was pretty much a, a modest budget. The running thread though, through this whole story is just, I suppose a kind of tragicomic scenario of having a, a lot of really strong constituent parts, but also those just being squandered so easily um, in, in unrealistic, bizarre and, you know, let's face it, a, a pretty shambolic cust, uh, commercial structure. So it was always within Eric and it didn't take much for, for this kind of spark to ignite a plan which ultimately became doomed. Now, the test car ran in December of 1994 with Alan McNish behind the wheel at Silverstone. So before we talk about that car a bit more, let's hear what Alan remembers of that test. Well, there was two tests, actually. There was a straight line test, which is like a systems check, a shakedown, if you like. 
And that was at an airfield uh, somewhere in Norfolk area, if I remember correctly. And uh, effectively, that was just driving up and down, making sure that all the, the car worked, there was no leaks, there was no problems, and then go to an actual circuit, which in this occasion was the South Circuit at Silverstone, which had uh, just been built, actually. And uh, it was a bitterly cold day. And uh, I remember one thing about it was uh, when you, you know, go out and drive a car for the first time, there's two sensations. One in a Formula One car anyway is just the acceleration. And the other one is the braking and cornering grip, that initial entry. And uh, certainly on the acceleration, the noise of the engine behind was, was clearly there. With the temperatures and things being so bitterly cold, actually trying to maintain the temperature when they came out of the blankets was tough enough in itself. Um, but we did a day's testing. I can't remember exactly how many laps, but it didn't have any problems, didn't have any uh, mechanical breakdowns. There's no gearbox issues. Uh, it ran pretty well. First feedback was that it didn't do anything untoward. It, uh, you know, it, it turned when it turned, it braked when it braked, uh, but it was so early uh, that in reality to try and compare it to anything else was completely incorrect because it was effectively the first dip of the toe in the water. And uh, that was something that was quite clear. It was not, not just for the car, but for the whole operation. Because I think if we remember back, Lola was a car constructor and they gave it to operators to race, being racing teams, whether that be in Formula 3000 in Japan, in Europe, or whether it be in IndyCar in America. And uh, so therefore, their actual work at the circuit was relatively limited. So, you know, it was a case of uh, everybody in the whole ecosystem actually just sort of feeling where things were and then preparing for what would have been the next step, which ultimately came admittedly, a couple of years later. Based on coverage from the time, Alan's recollection there is very good. The car didn't really have any problems, only some starter motor problems at the shakedown run that he did mention. But what I really like about this is that he said the line, it didn't do anything untoward in that clip there. And that's a line that appeared in his press release quote from the time as well. So Alan, ever the professional, can remember exactly what he was supposed to say about that car all these years later. But Ed, let's talk about the car because um, it looked slightly odd, didn't it? Yeah, you don't need to be a, a technical genius to notice the lack of airbox. So you've basically got the, the rollover structure, then where the airbox intake should be. You've just got nothing and kind of a flat plane on the on the back of the car, which is very distinctive. A lot was made of that at, at the time. It, it's a strange choice because there was a push in F1 at the time to reduce the, the ram effects, it's called, and reduce engine power with the holes that were mandated in the airbox. And the rules were kind of evolving. Lotus seemed to take that to extremes by not having one. It's just giving away engine power, which seems odd. I guess maybe it's possible they couldn't make the airbox work and it was disrupting the rear wing too much so they just took it off but that would seem odd for a company like Loda to get that wrong so it must have been a, a conscious decision in general this is kind of a sign of an underestimation that not only aerodynamics continuing to be as important but they remain on a trajectory to become ever more important as time goes on as you know Bernoulli would have told you ages ago that airbox is uh had they been a thing in his time that the ram effect is about aerodynamics and it's all part of the same thing so it was a yeah it was a strange contraption we should say that it was not the car they intended to race it was a development test mule so they were allowed to go a little bit off piste with it but yeah it's perhaps the first indication that there are a few a few strange decisions going on even though much of the car was as mcnish said 
as you'd expect from a company like Lola, perfectly functioning and, and fine. Things went quiet after that. Lola decided against doing a test at Kyle Army in February to accept an invite to put the car on display at the Paris Racing Car Show in 1995. And in May of that year, it declared it was full steam ahead with recruiting staff and upgrading facilities for that F1 entry in 96 as planned. But that never came together. Then in early 96, once Lola again hadn't got the funding in place, there were reports that it had linked up with Pacific boss Keith Wiggins, who would head up a new company that would oversee Lola's F1 project. Wiggins' job was to structure the team, and early in the year it was declared that Lola would need to have the funding in place by July to make an entry happen for 1997. But Lola started to stretch that deadline. In August, its managing director Mike Blanchet said Lola was closer than ever to getting a sponsor for 97, but he also admitted time is getting short. You can never be sure until the deal is signed, sealed and delivered. We've always said we won't do it unless we can do it at a sensible level. The deadline is in August. From then on, it becomes impractical. Around this time, Wiggins was said to have parted with Lola, although the company played that down, saying it was only ever a flexible liaison and his position was just under review. But August was the new self-imposed deadline, yet by September, Lola was still hanging on, with Blanchet saying there is a deal done in principle, but the I's need dotting and T's crossing and there isn't much time left. Shortly after that, he left the company and he described it as an amiable parting. Sam, we'll come to the reasons for the decision to commit so late to a 1997 entry in a moment. But just looking at through the summer, how Lola kept pushing its own deadline back, should alarm bells have already been ringing by that point? Yes, and I'm sure they started to become deafening. Um, having spoken to Mike Blanchet at length on this he, recently, he seemed to be a voice of reason, not not the only one, but he was very close to Eric and had been at the company for many years. And, and ultimately, I, I think he just wasn't listened to. I think once Mike had left the company, it allowed Eric's to be coaxed by um let's say consultants and um uh, more commercial types into going for an f1 entry in 97 so with hindsight that day was the beginning of the end really when mike left because every sinew of logic made it palpably obvious that as soon as the first day of sort of september came which was really the absolute deadline for getting something uh, reasonable on the grid for 97 it would be a massively self-defeating thing to even try and get an f1 project up after that sort of stage so for for all of those that know and respect mike who had been with lola for over 20 years at that point in various guises and, and was a very rapid f3 driver for uh, in lola's in the uh, 70s and, and early 80s this this should have been a huge warning light but ultimately mike's job was to ensure that a move into f1 was in the best best interests of lola as core business as well uh, and, and when he did the sums it, it just didn't add up and was never going to work and was 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 the key reason why uh why he was uh let go by the company and then we get to the start of october and there was still no confirmation of the funding being in place for a 1997 f1 entry but lola did announce it was going to build its own f1 engine broadly said at the time we've made this announcement about the engine as a long-term ongoing situation so that everyone knew what was happening. And he said Lola was still considering joining the F1 grid for the following year. A Lola spokesperson added around this time, it's certainly not dead for 1997, 
and if we are to go ahead, we will need to make an announcement within the next two weeks. The Lola engine wouldn't be ready for the start of 1997, but if needed, the team would race with an older spec Ford V8 for its first year. Sam, looking at the the engine announcement, which we got in October before we knew if they were committing to the F1 program, what do you make of the timing there? Do you think that this was Lola finding a way to get some sort of positive news out while the the, the F1 team project was was continuing to drag? Possibly, yeah. It seemed very odd, especially when you realised it was uh, around uh, a design whereby the rather colourful, let's say, Al Melling, who at that time was was running a fitful business from an industrial unit in in Rochdale. That's that's not to denigrate Rochdale at all, but it's it's not exactly Brixworth or Maranello, is it? So uh, that the plan was mooted to be for a fraction of the the price for other options, but on other options. But there was no way on earth it was going to be uh, competitive in that time frame even with you know even with with running ford v8s in 97 i think it just looked a bit desperate to be honest and, and more than that it was it was actually quite unlola in many ways which was noted as a practical and solid constructor which had at that stage had been around for for 45 years it didn't make a lot of sense to be announcing such significant plans around the engine when it hadn't yet confirmed a decision on on anything at all of any substance so honestly from what i know the communication will have been instigated by eric because he was taking a focused role on the project and was adamant that he was also going to engineer one of the cars which he subsequently did so he he wanted to be super hands-on um but i think as well as him making the decision of these these communications it was it was done in a in a pretty scattergun way to say the least yeah and you mentioned there that you know it was being done on the cheap it seemed and lola were actually quite clear on the the money they felt they would need to spend on the project saying that the uh the engine budget was going to be around five to ten million pounds ed even 25 years ago almost 25 years ago was that figure surprisingly low yes and somewhat ridiculous for that you could probably source an adequate customer engine deal that would get you through a season but based on existing and outdated technology to do your own from the ground up, not a chance. It just shows a lack of understanding of F1 at that moment and the, and the trends. The only small thing you could point to, and obviously we've talked about this project was rooted a few years ago. Um, in 94, for example, Hart were having great success with a pretty small budget for the engine that was in the back of the Jordan, but things were moving very, very, very fast. And that was a bit of a that was a bit of a carryover, that project. So maybe they looked at that and thought we could do it. But yeah, for that, it's just not gonna work even if you just look at the cost of running and maintaining and prepping the engines, let alone all the rest, nowhere near. It's just a triumph of, of optimism. I, I wonder if they were just trying to tempt in some engine builder that could get them sitting around a table and enthused and then get them to pour in more money. Who knows? Maybe it wasn't as strategic as that. Maybe it was just, just blind optimism. Now, something else uh, significant happened shortly after this because Japanese constructor Dome called off its plans to enter F1 for 1997. Dome boss Minoru Hayashi put this down to, and the quote is, some miscalculation in the acquisition of sponsorship. So no money. And in August, when Lola had first been stretching its own deadline to commit to an entry for 97, French team Dams had abandoned its plans for the same reason, a lack of sponsorship. Ed, I feel like if there's one thing you might love more than rubbish F1 cars that turn up to races... 
it's the ones that never get to the races. So what did you make of the Dome and Dam's projects? And, and to relate it to Lola, was it significant that they pulled the plug while Lola was still trying to get in? Because these two projects already had cars that existed by this point and the Dome had actually been running quite a bit in Japan. Yeah, it's great to have these these projects that didn't happen that actually did have cars. And yes, the fact that they had a similar level of, of machinery to what Lola did and, and pulled out says a lot. Both credible organisations, like Lola was, Dam's one of the leading teams in F3000, worked with Reynard and its prototype. But the aim of that car was to get something out there, something tangible that they could then show off to people and try and get some sponsorship on board. But they never succeeded. Dome, closer to Lola, I guess, as a constructor, connections with Mugen and therefore kind of tangentially Honda, but again, couldn't raise the funding. Neither was able to, or willing rather, to press on with a project built on sand. So perhaps this was a, a kind of warning shot and just underlines how many ducks you have to have in a row to do this. Just being a really great organisation, which Lola was, is not enough. Maybe you could wing it in the 70s, say, and Lola as a company in the 70s, which maybe it was, was was one of its heydays, was quite chaotic in the way it did things. But you could do that there and it worked brilliantly, but not once you're into the 90s, not a chance. Yeah, and uh, if you've never seen that Dome car, uh, Google it or go into YouTube and search for sort of Dome F1 test car 1996. There's some great footage of it driving around places like Suzuka. Quite a cool car. Shame it never raced. But by the end of October 96, Lola still hadn't confirmed if it would enter F1 in 1997, then on the 5th of November, we got fireworks. Lola announced it had secured a title sponsorship deal with MasterCard and that it was pressing ahead with an F1 entry for the following year. The funding, believed to be worth around £10 million a year, would come from MasterCard customers via an exclusive membership scheme that would give them access to a range of benefits with the team. There were three tiers. The first cost less than £100. The second would cost around £200 to £250. And then there would be a top tier with limited numbers that would cost somewhere in the range of four figures. Benefits included newsletters, autographed photos, team clothing and merchandise only available to members, plus auctions of racing memorabilia. In the top tier, you got access to special events with the team and dinners with the drivers. MasterCard was hoping 100,000 people would sign up around the world and it claimed that if 0.1% of its global customers joined the scheme, that could be worth £13 million. Speaking at the announcement, MasterCard's Senior Vice President of Promotions, Marva Heffler, said, This is something completely new in the arena of sponsorship marketing. We have put the sport in the hands of participating MasterCard cardholders. We have packages providing access to benefits they've never had available to them before. We have been able to work with Lola in a unique way, very different to putting the money down and you get what you get. It was quite refreshing to find that they were so open to that. Addressing fears about the team's competitiveness, she said, The fact the team will not be winning in the first year is not that detrimental because we are offering an accessibility with the club not offered by another team. The MasterCard programme wouldn't launch until near the start of the season, so until then, Lola had to find other funding to get the team going. Ed, we've got some more details of this to come, and we'll come on to the troubling subject of the timing shortly. But looking at the way this deal was framed, was this a clever approach to sponsorship, or was it always destined to fail? Yeah, very much the latter. It sounds great on paper, but it's so easy 
to just toss these numbers around. You say X customers, 0.1% of that equals loads of money. But it's it's not that straightforward. It's it's not a you've got to get people to sign up up for it. So very concerning and, and odd because if you think about it, had MasterCard partnered with, say, Williams to do this, you might think that makes a little bit more sense. The preeminent team of the time, some real uh, real exciting access and behind the scenes people might go for it. But even then, to get 100000 for that sounds very optimistic. And it also illustrates that MasterCard wanted its spending to be basically underwritten by its customers or put in by its customers. So that doesn't show great commitment. So it's a nice idea, but it's not an orthodox sponsorship scheme based upon just putting the money in and then doing your activation or whatever. The sponsorship scheme itself was founded upon selling the Lola product. And who on earth was going to buy a back-of-the-grid Formula One team? If Lola had done a good job, it would have been at the back in 97, whatever happened. You're not going to sell 100,000 credit cards off that, even at the, the lowest amount. You'd be lucky to sell 1,000. Very, very odd. Perhaps this is just another grand metaphor about F1 and credit card debt. I don't know. <laughs> It's all a bit South Park underpants gnomes for me. It's like whatever the plan is, we don't know yet, but phase three is profit. But there are a few key details we should touch on. And even Lola admitted at this launch that there was some bad timing involved. And that was why it was having to go with the customer Ford engines in that first year. But MasterCard was insistent that the team had to go ahead with the entry for 1997, which is pretty well known as one of the many factors that doomed Lola. What's not as well known is why MasterCard enforced this time frame, and it was because it wanted something high profile to give it global exposure between its sponsorships of the Euro 96 and World Cup 98 football tournaments. Broadly said around this time, we're doing F1 because it's there and we're ready. I think it's a totally logical decision. It will be tight getting the car ready for the first race, but you just have to plunge in and do your best, and we expect to make progress pretty fast. Now, Sam, I'm sure this is easier said than done when you've been chasing sponsorship for years and it finally looks like you're going to get a major brand on board. But should someone at Lola have had the courage to tell MasterCard at this stage in 96 that an entry for 97 wasn't going to be feasible and maybe even be prepared to turn them away if they weren't going to budge? Yeah, it's that, it's that old saying, isn't it? If it's too good to be true, it probably is. I think I remember thinking at the time along along these lines, and I, I wasn't even in the team then. So I, th I think Eric had some people around him at this stage from, as I mentioned earlier, agencies, consultants, whatever you want to call them, that, that had a lot of vested interest in getting this deal in place. And I think the bigger picture which you touched on, Glenn, is this structure of, of strategy that mastercard had with with bigger global uh promotions and and, um, and marketing their business you know the, the one voice of reason which we've talked about was blanche's he had gone um and, and i just think although eric was no fool and he must have known that it was going to be a massive push just to get the cars on the grid there was a, an element of blind faith um, through that winter, the, those winter months into leading into 97. A, a good example as well is that team manager Ray Bolter didn't start until mid-November. And, you know, in his interview, he even raised the question of, what year are we doing F1? We're not, we're not doing it in 97, are we? <laughs> and, and to his horror, Eric uh, affirmed that, yes, he was going to 97. So, it, you know, it, in the racing industry, there's always been this belief that uh, anything is possible. Think of 
Gordon Murray doing the the BT fifty two in however many weeks in eighty three, and then you know McLaren getting Mansell's wide angle tub done in thirty four days or whatever it was, which we we touched on in a previous series. There there is this faith in racing that things will be done, they'll be okay, and then you know worry about things at a later date. I I reckon seven times out of ten you might get away with it. But in Lola's case, case, there was just no way that was going to happen in 1997. That there was a reason that Ed and I's favourite F1 um, triers, shall we say, like Coloni and Acela, didn't go beyond the early 1990s. You know, it's because F1 had evolved to a state in 97, as Ed touched on, where, where the week just got found out very quickly. And, and, and none of that thinking came into the commercial, the sporting, or the technical elements leading into entering the f1 world championship in you know in four months time it's um it, it just sort of bends your head that they even contemplated doing it later in november it emerged that lola was hoping to start racing its own v10 engine during the 97 season rather than going through the whole year with the aging ford v8 Broadly said, we can't be that precise about timing because we don't know ourselves. We'll be playing it by ear a little, but that is the aim. The project is long term, but it has been worked on for quite a while, which is why it should be ready to run next year. In this country, we are very good at operating strong programmes on realistic budgets, making good use of money. Now, Ed, pretty much every question I could throw to both of you could contain the phrase alarm bells. But looking at where we are so far in November 96, when you've got a late go ahead for the project, a weird sponsorship deal that involves no money up front, and now talk of bringing a new engine in mid-season, but we're not sure when exactly, were these all just signs that this was going off the rails before the train had even left the station? Yeah, there's a very, very thin line between determination and desperation, and Lola was on the wrong side of that by now. There were too many weaknesses, too far behind in terms of key key areas and the distance saving graces like the engine weren't going to cut the mustard were they even if Lola had managed to uh, to to limp on there comes a point where you kind of have to cut your losses so I don't quite know what they were expecting to happen by this stage I mean they were MasterCard pouring money in up front then it might make sense but it, it hadn't hit that basement level of something that was that was gonna gonna happen but I guess they were just so far into it so so, so deep that they just had to go with it and hope that things came off which as we've said when you're dealing with f1 in 1997 you can't do that maybe you could have done it 10 15 years earlier and got away with it for a while but but not not by now in f1 the next development in lola's plans came in december when it announced its driver lineup of ricardo rosset and vincenzo sospiri rosset was coming off the back of his first year in f1 with arrows and he satisfied Mastercard's desire for a South American driver, while Sospiri made the step up from a test driver role with Benetton. The drivers were familiar with each other, having finished first and second in F3000 in 1995 as teammates at Supernova, with Sospiri coming out on top. At the time, Rosset said, Lola is not coming in to be a back-of-the-grid team. The first year will be hard, but with a secure sponsor, it gives me security for the future. Suspiri was recently interviewed for a feature on the race website uh, about his his whole year in 97. And when talking about taking a four-year deal with Lola over staying with Benetton as test driver, he said, I was optimistic because Lola was one of the best brands in motorsport. 
They showed me on paper that they had a lot of backing. They said the first year would be hard because we had a very old Ford engine and they didn't want to invest any money in that because there would be a different engine for the year after. Everything on paper was brilliant. So that's really why me and Ricardo signed for them. So Sam, we'll come to you first. What did you make of the driver lineup? Oh, pretty, pretty decent. You know, I'd, I'd seen uh, Rossette and Sosperi in Formula 3000 and actually even before that. When you look at Vincenzo's career, you, you see a driver who had a great deal of talent. He'd, he'd won in everything pretty much that he'd done up until that point, uh, often beating the likes of Coulthard, De Ferran and, and a young Rubens Barrichello in, 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 Vox, in GM Vauxhall Euro Series. But but he you know he often had a suspect temperament. I clearly recall him literally driving Damon Hill off the road in a Formula Three Thousand race at Nagaro just because Damon had got the latest Reynard instead of the T ninety one fifty Lola. If you can find that on YouTube, it's sensational. It makes Andrea De Cesaris look like the you know the most uh, the most polite driver in the world. That that apart, I think it was a good pairing. <laughs> It lacks a little bit of experience, you know. If you were to be picky, you'd, you'd say that maybe going with a with a sort of Tichezeris figure like Jordan had done in '91, or Stewart with a with a young but F1 experienced Barrichello in in the same year at '97 was maybe the way to go. Special quick mention too for Andrea Montemini, who had a a test deal with with Lola, but is, is not remembered for for, the, for that function particularly. You know, he was certainly at the test at Silverstone, although never got to drive of the car you know he was off the back of a 40 course of nightmare in 96 and uh, you know he tore that Zimtek apart at Barcelona in 94 too so so I guess seeing that Lola must have been pretty small fry to him after after that litany of disasters I'm contractually obligated to defend Ricardo Rosset a little bit here I'm not going to say he was a superstar but I think he was a better driver than F1 showed as Sam alluded to he finished second in Formula 3000 in his rookie season alongside Suspiri won his first race at Silverstone if memory serves you know a, a proper driver who unfortunately was made to look a little bit comedy in Formula 1 uh, the, the other thing I quite like about him is I did a podcast interview with him a few years ago when I was at Autosport and he actually owns the 96 footwork he he raced and the 98 Tyrrell and he said he did look into buying a 97 Lola to complete the set of his three seasons but he felt that even though it had that personal connection it was too expensive because the car was so rubbish it didn't warrant uh, the money they were charging for it didn't which warrant I was, 10 uh, pounds <laughs> exactly exactly so I, I just like the fact that even then as a, as a nice little display piece of his of his past it, it wasn't quite good enough to justify uh, <laughs> shelling out for I'd have had a word with the stores department we could have flogged in that tub that was in the corner so should have <laughs> Free said. up some space in the workshop if uh, if that car maybe that car can turn up on eBay and all the listeners who bring back V10s can club together and we'll we'll buy it it can't be that expensive <laughs> But um, Lola wasn't the only new team on the grid in 97, as we briefly touched on, with Stuart also joining the F1 ranks. The two projects couldn't be more different, really. Stuart was coming in with backing from Ford and major sponsorship from HSBC. But in January 97, Broadley was full of fighting talk about how Lola would get on against Stuart. Uh, the website Atlas F1 reported at the time that Broadley said, We can beat them and we certainly should beat them. If we don't beat them, then we deserve to be given a good kick up the backside. With our experience and backup, it should be no problem. He even went on to say that the combination of Damon Hill and Arrows would be a benchmark for Lola. And it gets better because he also said, It's exciting for us to be in Formula 1, but we are not going into it with over-optimistic expectations. If we get any podium finishes this year, I think it will be down to luck. You bet it will. Um, Ed... 
How did the Stuart and Lola projects compare at this point in January 97? Was it realistic for Lola to think they could beat or at least target Stuart? Well, the difference is night and day, and no, it wasn't realistic. Jackie Stewart had Ford Motor Company behind it. Works engine deal, five-year commitment there. Blue chip sponsorship in HSBC that was actually putting in money. He'd been working on an F1 team project for a very, very long time. Doesn't do things by halves. And this was done properly, absolutely built on solid foundations. So while Stewart was there, Lola was on, on a wing and a prayer. You know, it was starting off powered by a Ford engine that was a long, long, long way behind in terms of Ford technology. So straight away, even if you just factor in the thing making the car move, there's something they have to make up for there, let alone when you factor in all the other things. So yeah, it was a hit and hope versus something that was very, very well formulated and put together. And obviously Stuart, because he's such a great operator in the commercial world, was able to bring all of those things together. So again, it's not this question of the people at Lola weren't idiots working on it. They were very capable people, but they didn't have that that top level tying everything together in terms of facilities and finance, etc. Stuart had that and it had the people. So yeah, totally, totally different story. Yeah, and Stuart didn't have the easiest first year. Obviously, the highlight was Monaco, and there was a couple of good Bridgestone tyre races, we could say, but uh, that showed how even a proper team would find it difficult at the beginning. But let's get to the launch of the infamous T9730, which came towards the end of February. Broadly spoke at length at the launch, and he really talked Lola's chances up. He said, the company is ready for this, and I would hope that by the end of four years, which was the length of the MasterCard deal, we will be ready to win the world championship. We are not expecting massive results this year. We have a lot to learn about F1. It's a very straightforward car, but we have a few tricks up our sleeves. Sam, winning the championship within four years of starting up. Let's forget Lola for a moment. Should any team, even more than two decades ago, have been talking like that when they're first coming in? Uh, no, it, it, it sounds ridiculous now. And, you know, even then, it, it was it was just it's quite deluded in a way adrian reynard was was rightly sort of derided and castigated for saying something similar just a couple of years later and and the only reason i think eric probably got away with it to some extent was that you know he had a massive amount of respect from people in formula one because let's not forget that a fair few of those like patrick head and and john barnard who were around in 97 had cut their engineering teeth uh back in huntingdon in the early 70s those kind of statements ring alarm bells at the best of times but when we've got well, when we've seen something that in in modern formula one you know even now it it took or oh, in the last decade it took red bull several years to break through and, and indeed when you go back to to williams it took a decade benetton took almost a decade ron dennis took four years to win with mclaren that was a already a very established uh team with lots of capabilities it just wasn't realistic to 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 even consider probably with the that package um even winning a grand prix in, in in five years four or five years let alone challenging for a championship so with a real budget and the capabilities uh, a well-stocked winning team could you know could potentially get there or, or get podiums or challenge for wins but um you know th i think the prod this is the last thing that a project such as this needed you know there was there was no reason for eric to do this in fact quite the opposite he should have been taking the the opposite approach i think and, and being being what he was as a person um which was 
pretty humble and um uh, he's, he's a quiet guy who you know was was a solid old school engineer which makes me think that there was some reason for him making these um these pretty stark proclamations and i you know i i just sense i did i don't know but i sense that you know that the mastercard commercial aspect of it was um had some kind of uh, buzzword marketing um program that that's unfortunately uh, somebody in their late 60s probably wasn't the right person to uh to activate let's say and the questions from the media in attendance at this launch did bring some realism to proceedings as most of the questions were about if Lola would even be able to qualify within the 107% limit that was brought in for 1996 to stop unprepared teams from getting into the races. Broadly did address that. He said the 107% rule is quite a large margin, in fact, and if we cannot do that, then we really shouldn't be in it. I accept in the first couple of races we could have some silly problems, but apart from that, I have no fears. He also repeatedly brought up Lola's cart and IndyCar efforts quite a bit at the launch. He said the F1 car has a lot of carryover from the American projects, but he also said in many ways F1 is simpler than kart because in America they run on street circuits right the way up to super speedways. That means you have to have a broad range of requirements the car has to be able to adapt to with setup changes. They're actually pretty complicated machines. F1 circuits are much more similar to each other, it's the competitiveness of the cars that is honed that little bit more. And he then referred to Lola's US racing output when talking about the tight timeframes, saying we can produce cars in three months, we do it regularly. So we use the same people and the same machines. Now, Sam, by dismissing the threat of 107% and by making so many comparisons with what was Lola was doing in the US, was broadly simply underestimating the technical step up required to go from IndyCar to F1. Surprisingly, yes, I think I think he was, and I say surprisingly because you know he had relatively recent experience of, of F1 in 1993 with the ill-fated Scuderia Italia partnership, which was wholly uncompetitive. Although you know, let's face it, did have one of the most nineties lip ever liveries. You, <laughs> you'll never see that sort of garish Euro trash style. Chesterfield cigarettes livery again. It's kind of the F1 equivalent of a shell suit, I always thought. But uh, that apart, I think F1 was far more techni technically refined than, than CART was. Although what you call solid engineering, vehicle dynamics, CART was just as relevant, and there are some similarities there. Where things were very different was obviously the aerodynamic factor, and um, that's where things fell down for Lola, and perhaps personally for Eric. He didn't put significant or sufficient emphasis on aerodynamics as a, as a key performance differentiator. And, you know, the stories of him fabricating wishbones and coming up with new suspension geometries in 93 that that season that they ran Badoa and Alboreto to try and improve performance of that that Lola Ferrari which was really struggling throughout the most of the season uh, you know a legion he 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 was physically doing that himself and taking these these wishbones and these parts out to out to grand prix and, and trying to engineer the cars um <sighs> So it was it was always done in a kind of affectionate way rather than anything particularly cruel. But I just think Eric, as brilliant as he was, was just slightly out of time 
really for for Formula One at that stage, even even in '93. And really, what should have happened is that there should have been a delegation to other really talented engineers. You know, uh, Ben Bowlby had just started um, at Lola in that time. He was quite quite a visionary uh, engineer and went on to work in Formula Nippon and and Formula Three Thousand. Mark Williams was, I think, around at that time. Some really good engineers who went on to you know to to big projects and and in case of Mark, a lot of a lot of good f1 work so yeah a, a delegation issue but also underestimating completely how far formula one had gone on from you know even from the late 80s when they were working with larousse broadly also defended lola's engine plans from the decision to start with the outdated ford to the plans for an in-house v10 on the Ford, he said Lola's simulations reckoned it was 80 brake horsepower down on the Renault engine, and he reckoned that was only worth three quarters of a second per lap. As for Lola's own engine, he said, manufacturing it is obviously no problem for us, and that is one of the reasons we decided to build an engine in the first place. Everybody says that you need 100 million or whatever. I don't believe that is true nowadays. You can make anything with modern machinery and good organisation. We're not going to win in F1 without a super engine, and if we can't get one, we are going to make one. We won't go well enough until we have a good engine, so it's a chicken and egg situation. We really need the new engine as soon as we can. Ed, was he at least talking some sense here about the importance of the engine, or is it impossible to look past the fact that he's just underestimating what it would take to build a competitive engine? It's curious. There, there seems to be some cognitive dissonance here. He recognises the strong engines needed, yet simultaneously he's ignoring why what is spent by the manufacturer teams to produce the good engines is being is being spent. Yeah, you can manufacture things with good, good organisation and machinery if you can acquire that and set it all up, but you've got to design it, and that requires time and money. Rigorous testing, you're into material science, electronics research, dyno. I mean, there's the list is absolutely endless. A huge amount of, of effort. And also, this is at a time when we're seeing more and more exotic materials in F1. It was a huge design and development challenge. And this strikes me as someone who only saw the manufacturing angle of it. And ultimately, Eric Broadley, for his many talents, he wasn't an engine builder, was he? So I guess it was quite easy to overlook, as people sometimes do, as we all do. Things look quite easy if you're not directly involved in them. But making an engine is not just about making it. It's all the other work that goes into it. And then you've got all the things like fuel suppliers and fuel... You know, it, it was just totally, totally unrealistic and underestimating it dramatically. Now, listeners, you'll be shocked to learn that the next line on my script is the sentence, preparations for Australia didn't go well. At the car's shakedown at the Santa Pod drag strip, it suffered an engine failure. And then at its only proper pre-season test at Silverstone, it suffered gearbox problems and Suspiri's car even caught fire leaving the pits. Uh, this at least seemed to inject some realism into the public declarations from Lola, with team manager Ray Bolter saying, we've got a hell of a lot of work to do, but we've just got to go out there and do the best we can, get on with the job and get some miles in. Everyone's done really well to get this far and we're just going to keep chipping away but we're trying to be realistic. We're working towards getting two cars in the race and to the end of it, and if we qualify both, we'll be doing well. So Spiri was pretty relaxed about the lack of preparation. He said recently, we didn't get to know the car before Melbourne, but it was okay because I knew the problem. I knew the car was built without being in a wind tunnel and we were starting from scratch. 
I didn't think too much about the first year. I just focused on being better in the second year because I had a lot of things to learn. Suspiri and Rossett were also interviewed by GP Update in 2017 about this project. And in that feature, Suspiri said that from the handful of laps he managed at the test, uh, it was clear that it was hard to keep the car going in a straight line because it was shaking. That was the word he used, which he reckoned was because of how unbalanced the aero was. Both drivers have said in separate interviews in recent years that they felt the car was worse than an F3000 car. And just before the Australian Grand Prix, Lola got that data confirmed. The car was certainly designed without going in a wind tunnel before it was built. But just before Australia, Lola finally did some wind tunnel testing. So let's hear from designer Chris Saunders, who was tasked with trying to sort out the aero on this car. Well, we, we did finally build a, a wind tunnel model and it was really, really late, but we did manage to get it in the wind tunnel. And I think we did two days testing before the race. And, and all we were doing was mapping it, really. And then I looked at the first data and I thought, this has got less downforce than the Formula 3000 car, <laughs> which it did by a lot. Um, so I just did, you know, you can work out power and a few things like that and on lap time, do some sims and things. And I thought, ah, oh, maybe it's going to be nine or 10 seconds a lap off the pace. And I think it was 11 or something like that. So I just knew that with the horsepower we had and with the aero that we had, um, there was just no way it was going to do anything, uh, even qualify. Sam, there was some great stuff from Chris uh, and you interviewed him for this episode and uh, it's brilliant. There was more from him to come, but... Looking at where we were before the cars were packed off to Australia, if you were cynical about Lola's hopes before the car turned a wheel, by this point, was it already a foregone conclusion that Australia was going to be a disaster? Absolutely it was. The people within the team were bracing for it, but it was to a large part even a surprise to them just how far away they were from a pace perspective. But what what actually from the teams they had achieved to that point was pretty incredible i mean getting the two cars to leave the pit lane in that short space of time remember they really didn't start working on it until late november was you know that shouldn't be forgotten in, a, in an operational sense it was a miracle that they were in albert park ray balto as we heard from the team manager worked wonders and so did dave Luckett, who is a very well respected chief mechanic formerly of, of arrows who worked on the on the uh, on the project as well to give you an idea as to how late everything was they hadn't practiced a fuel stop because the rig only turned up at Melbourne on the Thursday morning before free practice, the first free practice on the Friday. That's how late everything was. Going back briefly to the Silverstone test, which they, they shared with uh, with Stuart, it became all too apparent that the new teams were, were just poles apart. And um, I think uh, as well as on the personnel side, there were, there were issues too, because Chris Murphy, who, don't forget, had been involved in the LaRousse Lola project in, in 89 and 90, he was technically in charge of drawing the car, but he actually didn't engineer a car. Eric insisted that he engineered Rosset with a guy called Dave Wynne, who was a South African uh, engineer who worked in touring cars because Eric knew and liked him because he'd worked with Bridgestone Tyres for a couple of seasons. Um, and Sosperi worked with Alex Zockling, who worked with Collis and I, th I think with Midland in, in F1 for, for a few years as well. So all that apart, yes, there was 
there there was a cloud of doom really over the whole thing as soon as the as soon as the sessions ended i mean you know it's it's a it's, a, it's an old cliche the stopwatch stopwatch just doesn't lie does it i mean at the end of the day if you are that far off the pace you've got a serious amount of work to do and it and it was clear to everybody in the team that they had to get on it pretty quickly just to you know just to to seize the embarrassment really from from what they'd gone through at albert park I'd imagine by this point they weren't timing it with a stopwatch. They were probably timing it with a calendar. Uh, let's get to Australia, though. Uh, in first practice, Rossett was 10 seconds off the pace and Suspiri was 14 seconds down. In FP2, Rossett was 8.6 seconds off and Suspiri was 10 seconds adrift. Things were a lot worse, though, in final practice because the pace at the front improved by four seconds. Thank you, Jacques Villeneuve. That's your only mention uh, in this episode, I believe. And Rosset was now 12.8 seconds slower and Suspiri was 15.6 adrift. And they only managed five and eight laps respectively in that session. Suspiri says Lola made huge changes to the cars from Friday to Saturday to fix the problem of the car struggling to stay in a straight line. He said they changed the suspension and the wing angles, which made the diffuser less powerful, but at least kept the car going forwards, going straight. Rossett says they were plagued with so many gearbox problems that they considered changing to a manual gear shift for Saturday, but it wasn't possible. Failure to qualify was obviously inevitable at this point, and Rossett's car got stuck in fourth gear, so he trundled round and ended the session slowest and 12.7 seconds off Villeneuve's phenomenal pole time. Suspiri was slightly quicker, but still 11.6 seconds off pole and nowhere near making the 107% cut. The next car above them in the order was Pedro Diniz in the Arrows, and he was 6.6 seconds off Villeneuve. At the time, Rossett said, We've got a lack of downforce and too much drag. The biggest problem is that we don't have a basic setup for the car, so we guessed at the settings, and when they were wrong, we panicked. That, which probably explains the drastic changes Suspiri mentioned between sessions. So, Ed, we've got the uh, the DNQ that we were all expecting. Where should we begin with this Australian weekend? Well, I'm sure if they tweaked the wing settings a little bit, fiddle with the dampers, they might have found the, the 5.3-odd seconds that, that <laughs> Suspiri needed to make the grid, perhaps. But but no, by this point, the die was cast. This was... It wasn't even an undercut car. It was a completely raw car. And this was the the living embodiment of the the building blocks that didn't exist in this, in this uh, project. And... You know, no matter who you throw into that weekend to engineer cars and drive them, you're going nowhere. You're looking for the performance that that isn't in there. You could take a charitable view and say that there was obviously system problems and the gear shift problems reflected that. So there were things they could have troubleshooted and got a little bit more pace out of the car, but it's just too much to find. It, it just would have hit home at that point how far away they were. They weren't running an F1 car in fact, has been alluded to, they weren't even running an F3000 car, really. It was that far behind. So, yeah, absolute hiding to nothing. And all credit to Ricardo Rosset for trying to put a brave face on it and saying, yeah, well, weren't quite there on the setup. I think that's a very good bit of uh, PR work from him. That'll probably be the only time you ever hear the phrase, all credit to Ricardo Rosset as well. Now, leaving Australia, broadly promised the team would be further on at the second race in Brazil. He added, track testing is what we need, but the schedule is so demanding. Let there be no doubt that we are here for the long run and we relish the challenge of F1. Now, this is actually quite an interesting point, Sam. We know where this story is heading, but after the disaster of Australia, 
Did you immediately think that might be the last we saw of this Lola F1 project? Or did you think that they would at least be able to keep plugging away? Well, I mean, here's the thing. The feeling in the team was it would get markedly better. And indeed, they all, bar Eric, travelled out to, to Interlagos after that, that test in between. The reality, though, was very different with the business side of things coming down like a like a like a pack of credit cards, shall we say? In, in fact, it, it soon became apparent that, as well as the F one project being in severe jeopardy, the whole of Lola Cars was also becoming increasingly at risk. Which we, you know, which is the sad reality of this uh, this pretty wretched period in in Lola's history. The, the, the weird debenture system, which was based on paying for the the, the project through through Mastercard, had, was crumbling, and. The the fact that it, the performance was so far off was actually, if you did a a list of um, a list of things that uh, were critical in this whole project, was probably not not at the top. I mean, commercially, this thing was 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 done. I mean, the the money was never going to come in. You know, essentially, the money was being sourced from from Lola Cars International and and from that side of the business, and it that just couldn't exist for for any. Uh, any period of time let alone for a whole grand prix season so it was doomed it was nipped in the bud did did i think we'd we'd see it again it was hard to know because a, a lot of this was you know a lot of this was conducted in you know smoke filled boardrooms or whatever in in 1997 and, and nobody knew the scale of the the the, the true picture really you know i i think it looked great as i said at the top of the show all the constituent parts appeared to be there but it was a lot of it was was smoke and mirrors, and 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 it just it was inevitable that it was going to be found out sooner rather than later. And I think actually it got, like I said, it got nipped in the bud at the right time, and uh, they shut those garage doors in in Interlagos. And as you mentioned there, it often gets forgotten that the Lolas did run again after Australia, with Rosset and Suspiri taking part in a test at Silverstone with several other teams. And as I mentioned earlier, Ed, when you interviewed Rossett about this, he claimed he never drove the car again, but he did. Uh, Ralph Schumacher was quickest at that test for Jordan. Rossett was 9.5 seconds off the pace, with Suspiri nearly 12 seconds slower than Ralph. Now, Broadley had seemed to get his expectations in check after Australia, but ahead of Brazil, uh, he was feeling bullish once again, declaring, I was disappointed that we did not race in Australia, but not entirely surprised. I have no doubt that we will qualify in Brazil and then begin to work our way up the grid. That is going to take time. We need more horsepower. Rosset wasn't quite so optimistic, saying of the test, we didn't improve the car a lot, but we know what the problems are. Now, as it turns out, Broadley's optimism was incredibly misplaced because, as Chris Saunders recently told Sam, Broadley had in fact made alterations to the car for the second round of the season that were going to make it even slower. So let's hear what Chris remembers of the activity at Lola post-Australia. For the next race, there was obviously going to be, need to be some modifications. And, and, and Eric, bless him, he was an, he was an engineer, but he, he, you know, he was a chassis, a chassis guy and really didn't get aerodynamics, um, which is why he employed me, I guess. Um, but... Uh, he decided that the problem with the car was suspension and roll centre and things like this. So, unbeknown to me, he had drawn up new rear suspension for the car. So, what was it? Brazil, the next race? And at that point, and 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 uh, shortly before the car race, I think Ford impounded the engines or something. 
which was which was quite fortunate because right, anyway, so we so so the so drawings and stuff went to the model shop, which I I hadn't seen. And the sort of parts were made, and I'm thinking, oh, Eric has kind of done this rear sus- new rear suspension, and um, anyway, they turn up in a box at the wind tunnel. We bolt them on it, and they went through the diffuser. The lower wishbone leg had been dropped by about like, four inches to change the roll centre. And we put this new rear suspension on. On as I remember, it was 190 pounds worse than than the car already had started at the level it started at. Which was about ten percent worse. I mean, and in normal terms, sort of ten percent would be a year's development, you know, on a, on a race car. So in about ten minutes, we lost a year's development. And I'm thinking, my God, well, you know, what are we going to do? Because obviously, it was his toy; he could do what he wanted. But ultimately, it was good because what happened was they impounded the engines, and we never got to the second race. I was going to run with this new suspension, and it would have probably been thirteen seconds a lap slower rather than eleven. In Eric's eyes, it was easy to change the rear suspension and cut a hole in the in the diffuser. It was de- it was desperate. I remember, and it all went down the toilet. What I remember is Eric coming in and just put his head in his hands and just went, "It's a disaster! It's a disaster!" He just just kept repeating that. And I was thinking, "You silly old fool!" But then this guy was, you know, because we had told him this was going to happen. Um, but that you don't kick somebody when they're down, do you? And and obviously. Um, um, it wasn't that it wasn't funded. I mean, it was actually quite well funded because obviously, when you saw the amount of money that was owed when when Lola went into administration, um, there was a lot of money spent on the program. It was just it would have been a lot more sensible to spend that over eighteen months, not not over six months, um, and and it would and it would have been fine. Sam, you hinted at this earlier. Actually, was another of Lola's fundamental problems with this project just that Eric never really embraced the 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 dawn of aerodynamics. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think that was a a, a part of the just the, the the whole issue, really. I, Lola never had an on-site wind tunnel or seven-post test rig until the Bahrain era a few years later, which tells you all you need to know, really, in relation to how things worked there. There was an element of the old school, as we touched on earlier, and, and as Chris Saunders attested, Eric just didn't embrace the aero side of things particularly or invest in it as he should have done in the mid in the early 90s really as as f1 teams were doing it was an area that could deliver a massive amount of performance as we knew but that there just seemed to be this blind spot in in and around lola and and, and eric was the leader so has to you know had to take some responsibility in that it was it was something of a paradox in a way because when you look at the success in carts uh, through the 80s and early 90s and the multitude of aero packages that had to be done for super speedways and short ovals and road courses as well there was clearly a certain level of expertise but that was usually either outsourced or was conducted at, at Cranfield um, so it wasn't an in-house capability really I wouldn't say it's the only reason why the 9730 was such a disaster because ultimately the root of the issue was the simple timing decision from from late 96 uh, which was just so flawed that then created a knock-on effect which ultimately doomed the project and ushered in a new era for Lola I mean one of the great ironies of course is that just a few months later when Martin Bahrain took 
uh, became the custodian of the of the constructor of Lola. That one of the first things he did was invest in a in a technical center encompassing <laughs> a wind tunnel. So some irony in that, but uh, that's the way it happened, and uh, it was all part of the modernization of of the brand. Now, of course, as we've hinted at a few times, the cars never ran in Brazil. They were there; they were in the garages but broadly made a decision on the Tuesday night before the race to cut his losses on the failing project and withdraw the team. A Lola spokesman at the time told the media the problems faced by the team were both technical and financial. The Mastercard deal was in the spotlight. Um, with Lola saying, our deal with MasterCard meant the revenue would be generated from its new F1 club. But this is not good for us. The balance of finance as it stood was not favourable. It was a timetable situation. We needed the money up front because that is where the investment is needed. We tried to get alternative funds arranged, including additional sponsors, but we were late in starting this programme and we were late in getting the cars ready. MasterCard was quick to distance itself from the failure, releasing a statement that said uh, the Lola Formula One organization is experiencing financial difficulties. As a result of that, Lola Formula One would not be able to continue its 1997 racing season. And as a consequence of that, MasterCard's sponsorship has ended. Nobody told the drivers what was going on. They only found out when they arrived at the circuit and saw all the garages were locked up. But Ed, ultimately, for all of the mistakes that were made along the way, by Lola, was Broadley's decision to throw in the towel when he did the right thing to do? Yes, absolutely, because continuing it was just putting the whole of, of the company into ever further jeopardy. And it was clear that they were struggling to, to make payments. There comes a point where your credit runs out or your, your cash flow reserves uh, run out. So, of course, they, they had to stop it. The simple fact was they embarked on this course of rushing it that could have worked if they could have just brute force spent their way through it and survived and got to a couple of years down the line. You could recover from this start, but that was never on the cards. They never had the sustainable income to be able to to do that. And it's quite strange to see the, the blame being on the MasterCard deal the way it was because it was always structured that the money would come later from that. So it's not like the money suddenly vanished in that regard. So there was never this way to bridge from where they were to being a successful Formula One team, which all the way back to the, this question we talked about earlier about whether they should have just said to MasterCard, we can't do it for 97, even if that meant they had to have a, a different sponsor. So it's just all these all these loose threads were just pulled at by the, the spending and the situation and the whole thing just had to stop before it even more catastrophically fell apart. And as it was, it did a huge amount of damage to, to Lola as a company. So I can't see any way to continue unless there was just some magical infinite source of money that could be poured into it, which there wasn't. There were attempts to get the team back on the grid for the fourth round of the season at Imola, but that came to nothing. And at the end of April, the F1 team was liquidated, reported to have debts of around £6 million and assets only worth £450,000. The F1 team was set up as a separate company to Lola Cars. So the belief was that although Lola Cars was the main creditor of the team, it wouldn't be at risk. But just a month later, Lola Cars itself was placed into administration. Fortunately, that was a stronger business proposition. There was plenty of interest. And as Sam mentioned earlier, Martin Bahrain took the company over and moved it into a new era where it did prosper into the 21st century. But let's go back to MasterCard for a moment. 
You'd think that would be the end of their brief flirtation with F1, but that wasn't the case. Step forward, Eddie Jordan. As soon as Lola withdrew in Brazil, Eddie got the phone number of MasterCard CEO Bob Serlander from Bernie Eccleston, and he called him up. Remember we mentioned earlier that the South American market was a large part of MasterCard's F1 plans? So Eddie offered to look after MasterCard's guests over the Brazil weekend in exchange for a chance to pitch a sponsorship deal in New York on the Monday after the race. Jordan's commercial boss Mark Gallagher joined Eddie for that presentation and they initially landed a one-year deal and a traditional one at that with real money actually attached and, uh, and paid up by MasterCard. But MasterCard was so happy with how that first year went, they renewed with for another three years with Jordan. Gallagher believes MasterCard was embarrassed by the Lola situation and needed to save face. He said they were demanding but good to work with and had just been missold a bad idea first time around. So Ed, Eddie Jordan takes pride in the fact that he often landed big sponsorship deals, in his words, on the hoof. What do you make of how he and Mark landed this one? Well, one person's problem is another's opportunity, isn't it? This is great opportunism, razor sharp from a team that really was everything the Lola project wasn't, because Jordan had defied the odds to get there. Lola seemed to have, have denied them. But just by seeing that opportunity, realising not just that there was a potential sponsorship deal going, but that MasterCard had a problem with its guests for that weekend. So pile in, solve that problem for them. Back yourself to to pull off the deal and make it work. Really, really good from Eddie Jordan and Mark Gallagher. Great opportunism. And you can't blame them for that because Lola had gone. They weren't pulling the rug from under Lola or anything. It was just they saw an opportunity and took it. And it meant MasterCard got to experience three wins over the, the years that followed with Jordan as well. So I guess it all worked out. But we'll finish off with a line from Broadly back at the car's launch, which perhaps sums up this whole saga best. He said he was looking forward to the challenge, but he went on to say, we probably should have done this 25 years ago. We could have grabbed a Cosworth DFV engine off the shelf and run up front with everybody else. Sam, ultimately, was Eric right? Did Lola just try to do F1 on its own in the wrong era? It's it's an interesting one, this. I've thought about it carefully. I, I, think, I think there is an easy narrative to follow here, but, but actually... If they had got things together properly from a commercial standpoint and had come in for 98 with those drivers and Eric had taken a bit of a backseat or delegated, got Chris Murphy and other engineers, as I said, to come in and Chris Saunders had been given a good budget and been able to build a technical centre as Martin Burain subsequently went on to do, I genuinely think it could have worked. Capability-wise, Lola was no different to a Sauber or a Prost at that time. You know, they really had a lot of the same um, the same facilities. It had some of the resources, and in the right circumstances, it could have had a good crack at F1. But the timing just completely scuppered it. And having said that, there would have to have been a clearer distinction, I think, between the F1 team and, and Lola Cars from a long-term point of view. There's There's been so much myth-making around the T97 30 projects um it it was it was one of the worst f1 cars ever built yes we know that but in reality it's a it's a much more it, it's a richer story than that and hopefully we've you know we've um added to it a little bit here today it was just an ill-conceived rushed project which besmirched the lola name we know that and it kind of defined its history in some people's eyes but but like history 
it, it can be revised. And when you look at it in isolation, it was actually a tiny but significant blot in an otherwise amazing 54-year career of engineering excellence and uh, and some sublime racing cars. But it's a, it's a it's one that is is difficult to answer. But that there is no reason why, if things have been different, particularly in the timing, Lola couldn't have gone on to be an entrant in formula one and, and and as we saw 10 years after that when when i was at the company um you know it had a pretty credible project on the go for the cost gap era which came along a bit later well i completely agree with what sam said there there is also a tempting alternative history where lola say dives into formula one in that dfe era in the particularly if it's there by the, the late 70s it can be there for formula one's growth it perhaps suited the company uh, size and the way it worked better back then. Obviously, it would have had to have been a, a race team, which was actually still very different to what, what Lola was at that time. But you think of all the quality of people, you can't help but think, oh, well, they could have had their pick of fantasy Formula One team people, Patrick Head, John Barnard, all these people involved doing it. Maybe that was the, the time that would have been absolutely ideal. But I do agree that that doesn't mean that that was the only time they could have done it. And that there is a, an alternative history of, of the '90s where maybe they they got things uh, they got things right and didn't and didn't rush things in, in the way they did. Well, I think what we've established is that hindsight can be absolutely brutal, and it's unfortunate how many of the things that were said around this project at the time aged so badly, given what a disaster it was for its short-lived existence. But that's the end of the Lola 1997 story, a topic that has been requested multiple times by our audience ever since we started Bring Back V10s. So we hope we did it justice uh, and maybe shed some more light on one of the biggest failures in recent memory. Looking at the timer on my recorder, we certainly spent long enough doing it, uh, but hopefully it was worth the listen all the way to the end. Remember to get your questions in for our series finale, where you can ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005 using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. And as I mentioned earlier, but just because we answer a question on a subject in one of those episodes doesn't mean we won't come back to it in more depth in the future. And Sam did answer a question on this Lola disaster back in Series 1, but it was too big a story for us to leave it there. So your questions could inspire future episodes if you get them submitted. By all means, leave us a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it, and you can submit a question there as well. Next time, we're keeping with the theme of a debutante that was potentially underprepared for F1, but this time things worked out rather differently. We'll be telling the story of how a young Kimi Raikkonen graduated straight from Formula Renault to F1 and all the controversy that generated ahead of the 2001 season. <laughs>